I want to start today's episode with a quote from Bruce Landsberg from the National Transportation Safety Board. He says, A bridge-building disaster should be incomprehensible in today's technical world. We have been building bridges in this country for over 200 years, and long before that in other parts of the world. The science should be well sorted out by now. And for the most part, it is. But as you heard in the last episode, the Florida International University Bridge did collapse. So if the science is so well sorted, how did this happen? This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Today's episode is part two of our three-part series on the collapse of a pedestrian bridge in Miami, Florida in 2080. While many things would come together to cause the collapse of this structure, the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, would identify some serious errors in the design of the bridge. In this episode, we take a deep dive into these errors, and we attempt to understand why they occurred. In our last episode, you heard how a pedestrian bridge under construction at the Florida International University collapsed in 2018 and killed six people. And we spent a lot of time in that episode exploring how there was plenty of evidence that something was wrong with this bridge. It had developed cracks when it was still in the casting yard, a full three weeks before the failure. These cracks had gotten worse as the bridge was moved into position over the highway and the post-tensioning in member 11 was released. Then... You heard how the bridge designer, Fig, made a decision to reapply the post-tensioning to member 11 in an attempt to close back up the cracks and return the critical member 11-12 to deck joint connection to its former condition. It was this decision that sealed the fate of the bridge because it caused the explosive failure of the member 11-12 deck joint. So in this episode, we're going to explore the serious design errors that led to the joint being fundamentally weak in the first place. So in order to understand the design errors in this bridge, we first need to take a step back and talk about how a designer actually goes about designing a bridge like this. Now, the bridge was meant to have been designed in accordance with the Ashto LRFD provisions. So let's break down what's a complicated process into a greatly simplified one. So if you're a structural engineer, you approach bridge design sort of like this. You first select a preliminary size for all the members in the bridge, which is essentially an educated guess. Then you work out the loading on the structure. So firstly, the bridge needs to be able to carry its own weight, which is usually called its self-weight or its dead load. After this, the bridge has to carry any live load that's applied to it. In this case, pedestrians will be using the bridge and it needs to be able to carry them. And we could go on because there's lots of other loading you have to consider, like earthquake and wind loading. The designer then applies all these loads to the bridge, either in a computer model or by doing hand calculations. 
And when you've done that, you end up what we call the actions in each member and connection in the bridge. In very simple terms, we're working out the load or the force in each member and connection, but we'll use the term action. Once you've done this, you work out the strength of each of the members and connections in the bridge. Sometimes this strength is referred to as the resistance, but for our purposes, we'll use the term capacity. It's essentially a measure of how much action you can apply to a member or connection before it's considered to be overstressed. Then you go through each member and connection of the bridge, and you check that the action in each member and connection is smaller than its capacity to resist that action. Once you've confirmed all the actions are less than the capacities, the bridge is essentially designed. So in very simple terms, the action in any given member or connection has to be less than its capacity to resist that action. If an action is higher than a capacity, then you have a problem. And this means that the design of the bridge has an error in it. And this is precisely what the NTSB found in their investigation of this collapse. Now, just one more thing before we leave actions and capacities. Not only do you work out the actions and capacities, but you also apply factors to them. And these factors are all about achieving a safer bridge. Or as engineers would say, achieve a design with the appropriate reliability. So you typically apply a load factor to the load to make it larger. You amplify it. And you apply reduction factors to the capacity to make it smaller, to reduce it. So you're deliberately overestimating the loading and you're deliberately underestimating the capacity. And the NTSV would identify problems with the selection of these load factors, which we'll talk about later. But before we do, as you heard earlier, the NTSB found design errors in the bridge. So were these errors in the action calculations or the capacity calculations? It would turn out they were in both. Let's start with the action calculations. The key action we're interested in is the action in the member 1112 deck joint, because this is what failed on March 15 and collapsed the bridge. And the specific action we're interested in is the interface shear force, which is an action that's trying to push members 11 and 12 horizontally relative to the deck. Now, FIG, the designers, calculated this action by building computer models of the bridge, and they analyzed these models. It appears that, based on these models, FIG determined that the action across the joint, the interface shear, was 1,000 kips. Now, don't worry about what a kip is at the moment. It's basically a measure of force. The key thing is that the answer they came up with was about 1,000. This is the value they then appear to have used in the design of the joint. After the failure occurred, the Federal Highway Administration went and built some computer models of the bridge. They set out to check whether this value of 1,000 that FIG had used was reasonable. What they found was that no, it wasn't reasonable. The value that FIG calculated was too small. The value FIG should have come up with was about 1,800 kips, so almost twice the value that FIG had calculated. This meant then that when they were designing the bridge, they were designing the bridge with an action at a key joint that was too small. So why did FIG pick this low number of 1,000? Before we answer that, let's step back a bit. 
Fig had several different kinds of computer model of the bridge. And the reason they had more than one model was that this bridge had distinctly different construction stages. We spoke about these stages in the last episode, but it's worth running through them again. So after the bridge is poured and the false work is removed, the structure is simply supported so it's spanning from end to end. Then when it's moved to its position over the highway, it's supported by transport platforms with its ends overhanging. Then, in its final configuration, which never actually eventuated because the span collapsed, it was meant to be part of a larger structure that was going to mimic a cable-stayed bridge. So Fig built these models and extracted the results for the interface shear at the member 1112 deck joint. Now, the results from the different models differed from one another, and as an engineer you'd expect this, because the configuration of each of these models is different. The trick is that you need to select the biggest action from each of the models. In other words, you're taking the worst-case scenario. So, as you know, the value fig selected from the models was a value of 1,000 kips at the member 1112 deck joint. But when you look through the results of the models, you not only find a model giving a value of 1,000 kips for this critical joint, you also find one of the other models predicted a much higher value of around 2,000 kips. Now, if you remember, the Federal Highway Administration calculated that the action in the critical joint was 1,800 kips. Now, this is so close to the value of 2,000 kips calculated by FIG. So this means that FIG had a computer model that predicted the action in the joint, but instead of using that value, they used a lower value from one of their other models. Now, why would they do that? And it's here where you have to remember the words of Nietzsche from our last episode. The unfamiliar involves danger, anxiety, and care. The fundamental instinct is to get rid of these painful circumstances. And Nietzsche's words hold up very well here. You'll have to embrace the anxiety of not being able to resolve some aspects of this failure satisfactorily to make it to the end of this story. So with that in mind, the NTSB were unable to get to the bottom of why FIG used the lower action of 1000, despite having a model with the higher value. We simply don't know. And I think this is really important because you honestly have to ask yourself, is this really a true technical failure? Because after all, the calculations to work at the actual value were undertaken and they did give reasonable results. But these results just weren't used by the humans involved in the project. And we'll come back to this point in our next episode. So let's examine the capacity calculation for this joint. So how do engineers work out the strength or capacity of a joint like this? Well, to understand that, we need to step back and talk about how the joint is constructed. Because you can't think of this joint as a solid piece of concrete where diagonal member 11 and vertical member 12 connect to the deck. You can't because of the way the concrete is poured. First, the deck is poured, and once the concrete sets and develops a certain level of strength, you pour all 12 vertical and diagonal truss members, then when they're set, you go and pour the canopy of the bridge. But because you've done three separate pours, you end up with joints in the concrete where the truss members join the deck and the canopy. These joints are called coal joints. If you think about this in the context of the member 1112 deck joint, this means that there's a horizontal joint in the concrete where diagonal member 11 and vertical member 12 join the deck. So what you've done is you've introduced a layer of natural weakness into the bridge joints. Now that's not necessarily a problem, that's just a practical outcome of how you're constructing the bridge. 
but you need to ensure that this joint, this line of weakness, is taken into account when you're calculating the capacity of the joint. In simple terms, you need to make sure this joint doesn't want to slip horizontally and fail along this line of weakness. So how do you design this joint so that it won't slip or fail? Well, there's a few things you have to do. One thing you can do is to make sure you have enough steel reinforcing bars crossing the cold joint to prevent it slipping. But we're not really going to focus on that here because the errors that were made were more fundamental than that. Instead, we're going to talk about two other things you can do to stop the joint slipping. One is you can determine how much clamping force is available. In other words, how much force is pushing the joints together and preventing them moving. And the other thing you can do is determine how rough the concrete at the joint is. In other words, if the joint is very rough, this creates more friction between the surfaces and helps prevent slipping. So let's talk about the roughness of the joint first. In the design of these cold joints, you can actually specify a certain roughness for the concrete surfaces. The designer can essentially instruct the contractor building the bridge to roughen the joint to a certain level of roughness. And it turned out Fig wanted to do that. They specified a certain roughness and they noted it on their drawings. But while they noted it on some of their drawings, they didn't note it on the construction drawings. So when the contractor MCM saw the drawings with no note to roughen the joint, MCM didn't do so. And after the failure occurred, the NTSB investigated these joints and they found that they were not roughened. So this means the joints weren't roughened in real life, but FIG were assuming in their calculations that this roughening had taken place. And because FIG assumed this, they assumed that the joint had additional capacity that wasn't actually there in practice. Now while this point is important technically, the NTSB do note that even if the roughening had taken place, it wouldn't have been enough to save the bridge. So that's the roughness of the joint. Let's talk about the clamping force across the joint. The greater the clamping force squeezing the joint together, the higher the friction and more friction makes it harder for the joint to slip. So the bigger the clamping force, the bigger the capacity of the joint. So what generates this clamping force? Well, if we take the member 1112 deck joint, you have the weight of the bridge trying to clamp this joint closed. So the weight of the bridge itself is generating this clamping force. Now the NTSB identified a number of errors in FIG's calculation of this clamping force. Fundamentally, they found FIG overestimated the force, which meant that on paper, FIG felt that this joint had extra capacity that it didn't actually have in real life. They calculated the clamping force inappropriately in two ways. One, they included load on the bridge that was not always going to be there, namely the pedestrian load. Think about that. The pedestrian load actually adds more weight to the bridge, which in turn increases the clamping force, which then produces a higher capacity for the joint. But that pedestrian load is not always on the bridge, which means that when it's not, the clamping force is smaller than it was being assumed by FIG. So that was the first issue. The second issue relates to the load factor that was applied to the clamping force. You'll remember we talked about load factors that you apply to the actions to artificially make them larger. So you assume more load on the bridge than is actually going to be there and you get a safer design. FIG made an error in the selection of the load factor they applied, which led to an overestimate of the clamping force. So how did this happen? Well, FIG could choose from two load factors to apply, 1.25 or 0.9. 
they applied a value of 1.25, which just means they multiply their loading by 1.25 to make it artificially bigger. So they make it 25% bigger. But the design code recommends that the load factor that's applied has to generate the most adverse case for the bridge. Now, usually applying an extra 25% of loading to the bridge will be the worst case, except when it comes to calculating the clamping force. Because by adding an extra 25%, you're actually making the bridge less safe because you're assuming more clamping force than is there in real life. So in this case, you shouldn't select a factor of 1.25, you should select 0.9. In other words, you multiply the loading by 0.9 so that you only take 90% of it and you use that to calculate the clamping force. This results in a lower clamping force, which means a safer design. So let's pull all this together. Fig underestimated the action at the critical joint by a significant amount. The action they should have considered should have been about twice what they used. At the same time as this design error, Fig assumed that the bridge had extra capacity because of roughening, which it didn't have, and they also assumed it had more than an extra 25% in clamping force, which it didn't have either. It should come as no surprise to us then that when the bridge was forced to carry its own weight back in February 2018, when it was simply supported and its false work was removed, that it cracked at the critical joints. Even at that stage of construction, the actions on member 11 would have been twice what Fig assumed, and the capacity of the member 11-12 deck joint to resist that action was considerably lower in practice than what Fig had calculated. So you can see here there were numerous errors in the design of this bridge. And for me, this throws up a whole range of questions. Firstly, when the bridge began to crack badly, like we discussed in the last episode, why did no one go back and check these calculations and identify that something was seriously amiss? There was a whole three weeks from when the cracks first appeared until the collapse to do so. Secondly, there was a detailed peer review process in place to identify any errors in the design of the bridge. Why did this process fail to identify these errors? It probably feels very easy at this point to say that design errors caused this failure, that the designers were incompetent. But I want you to hold off from doing this. Because as you'll hear in our next episode, this collapse is so much more than the story of design errors. And to pull it apart, you'll go on a journey that will encompass a murder in New York and a smoke-filled room. You'll hear about why the commercial arrangements can have a huge impact on how people do their jobs. And we'll return to Nietzsche. Because ultimately, this is a story of how the very protections we put in place as an engineering profession can be eroded, ignored, and dismissed. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human, and organizational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. 
If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhayward.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.